coming up in this episode. Brain inflammation, that was my first symptom. And the disease is incredibly volatile and versatile. So there are so many different uh, symptoms, different issues. When I, I for a long time always said I had encephalitis of the brainstem, which is the first symptom. But that was really for a long time to confuse people because I didn't want to say it's MS because that, of course, has this huge stigma like Ugh, she's mm. going to die. People who I've known who've gone through divorce or even just a, a breakup after a very long relationship, which I've been myself, is, you know, you build a mythology together throughout your life. Mm. Your identity is tied with someone else's identity. Like for me right now, you know, part of my identity is I'm a father and I'm a husband and I'm a business owner. Like, you know, that those three things, those, those are, you know, so, so when you do go through that sort of process, then there's a, an identity crisis that can come about there. And prevention in the Alzheimer's context is really the only way, um, uh, because Alzheimer's is a highly individual, highly complex disease. And once that has manifested, there by now have been 100 patients that have returned from cognitive impairment to cognitive function with a very intense one-to-one consultations with neurologists. The Founders Unplugged podcast, hosted by Greg McCallum. Raw, unedited conversations with entrepreneurs and startup founders. Martina, how are you? Hello, I'm well. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for bearing with me. Um, bit of a nightmare. I spent the last hour fixing my PC and I've just managed to fix it. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because an hour ago i just thought like i'm just gonna real quick have a look if uh, my camera is gonna work because right. uh, with zoom it always works with teams sometimes google meet usually and of course it didn't so now <laughs> i am very acquainted with all my meetings and stuff so right that was so um really lovely to see you again thank you so Good much for you. yeah being patient while I was getting all this stuff sorted out. So we've started a little later. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining me. So like I mentioned, when, you know, when we spoke uh, way back when, when we were talking about doing this, you know, it's just going to be a conversation, a chat. I'm not going to grill you. You're not in an interview, you know. Um, but there is one little bit of a, a thing I like to do at the beginning, um, which is about the only structure this entire show has, <laughs> to be honest, um, which is just to ask my guests to introduce themselves and uh, their business. And, you know, and you can take as long or as short as you like. You know, it could be an elevator pitch or you can give me a full life story. I really don't mind. So I'll uh, I'll hand the, the spotlight over to you, as it were. And uh, while you're, you're doing that, I'll also share the screen and, and uh, show your, your uh, profile and website and so on. All right. Okay. So go ahead. So shall I start? Yes. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. And um, is this intro to you or to the audience? To, to everyone listening and watching right now, because we're, yeah. We're, we're, okay. Yeah. okay. So <laughs> my name is I'm the founder of Vietto Health, and it's a digital health tech, so that it's going to be technology that will give the user tailored guidance on food and lifestyle choices to make to improve their brain health and to decrease their risk for Alzheimer's disease later in life. So that is my address pitch and um, I'm at a quite an early stage um, I'm running the first user test end user test right now um, and with that collecting very interesting live data um, that is of course always very different to running the idea by friends or other uh, founders who love it and then uh, people that actually so so essentially how the, the user test is structured is really that while um, once the tool is how it is uh, it will be technology and app where the user will get a push message once a week with this uh, food and lifestyle guidance. And um, 
as it is now, the user signs up via the website and then fills in their user profile and they receive once a week an email with the guidance. And um, that is very interesting how people react to it uh, in that um, some things are very welcome, make a lot of sense, but of course many things are very different to conventional wisdom that so really um, the 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 rule or the, the philosophy I follow is really functional medicine, which is all about supporting the function of the body with natural means. And um, that is not always what is conventional knowledge. So that is not something that your GP would ever tell you. So um, sometimes it's these whole like, why, why, why? How, how, how could that possibly work kind of conversation? Mm -hmm which is incredibly interesting for me to see where people are and what, of course, my tool will need to cater for in terms of level of knowledge and what language, what narrative they need to be communicated with so it makes sense for them and so that they are willing to take on the guidance, if that makes any sense. Mm, yeah, it does make sense because I imagine what well, we all have a certain amount of preconceived notions about our own health and about general health matters. So um, you're battling with that quite quite often, I imagine. When you mentioned you, what you you sort of said a phrase there, which I've not heard before, um, about that that you're advising to tackle health with through natural means or something. You just said yeah. was that was that it? Well, can you yeah. explain that a bit more? What do you mean by that? Okay, so it's really the concept of functional medicine. So that's really a term that functional was medicine, defined, right. um, in the US uh, uh, probably 20 years ago. And that is really the approach to human health, um, not, not, not necessarily opposite, but different to conventional health. Um, so conventional medicine is looking at a patient, a human, looking at their symptoms, and then giving usually from interventions to manage the symptoms. And functional medicine is looking at the human, looking at their symptoms and working back on the patient's timeline, what happened to lead up to these symptoms. And then uh, essentially working on eradicating whatever the root cause, the trigger of these symptoms was. And then for the future, supporting the human back to health, back to function. Um, so, uh, and that is really the approach of the app. Um, the reason really is that um, Alzheimer's, we probably have all heard about, on the one hand, it's a huge global epidemic. And on the other hand, there are a few medications that have terrible health uh, safety records. It's, it's a very, uh, very inflammatory topic, so I'm not going to get into that too much. But um, realistically, there is no drug for, that actually prevents or cures Alzheimer's. And at the same time, there is so much knowledge about showing that Alzheimer's is preventable to quite a great extent, 40% of cases, with the right food and lifestyle interventions. And by now it's all over the papers, mass media, daily mail, telegraph, times, everywhere. Alzheimer's is preventable with food and lifestyle. And you read the article and it just says, don't smoke, don't be fat, don't be stupid, you'll be fine. And of course, <laughs> that's not, you know, that, that is not the guidance that people need to actually mm. know what does that mean for me? And mm. of course, every human is different. So we all have different risk factors. So while we live in a world that simply is making brain healthy life difficult simply by the foods we eat, the air we breathe, the sedentary lifestyle, so many things, mm. but um, there are greater risks that 
we all have different ones that need to be addressed first. And that's really, my tool is, is tailored, not personalized, because personalized implies testing, incredibly expensive testing. And the mm -hmm. idea really of the app is it's clear, executable guidance, but it's absolutely accessible for all. It doesn't need any medical knowledge. It doesn't need any financial means to actually go through all this testing, see a neurologist, go through all this, and this whole question of, am I at risk? I would always argue we all are simply by the fact that how we live in this mm. modern world. Without we exist, and therefore we are at risk, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's not about scaring people, quite opposite empowering people, um, that there is no reason to go through life fully expecting Alzheimer's is just an inevitable consequence of aging. Quite the opposite. It is our daily choices. With that, we can make our lives better. Mm. Not making that a stressy thing as in, I cannot only eat cardboard because otherwise I'm going to kill myself and all that. Not at all. It's very much about this very positive, very optimistic message as in, we can make such a hugely positive impact to our own lives, our own health. Um, and that is going to help with that. So that's really my yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it, and it's a, and, and it's a great um, great concept. And and what's interesting though is the reason why I asked you to explain that term is because I thought that's what you meant by that. But it's just surprising to me that that's not considered a mainstream approach in medicine, um, because essentially what it sounds like you're describing is the approach of treating treating the symptoms versus treating the illness, the disease, right, the cause. Which is, it, you know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very, off, you know, a common saying to say, you know, we, oh, we're treating the symptoms, not the cause. And that's considered a negative thing. Um, so it's just kind of hard to hear in some ways that modern medicine doesn't take that as a standardized approach to do both, to manage pain and symptoms that, that are, you know, un, that are causing, you know, uh, quality of life issues. But then also looking at a, a life and assessing that life and making recommendations based on that. I know that sometimes that happens like with, with obesity, for example, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, you're suffering from arthritis or diabetes. Well, then you need to make these changes. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, it's surprising to hear you say that it's not as common practice for, for everything, mm -hmm. which is- I, I think that is really driven, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 I, 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 think um, can... I, I think that is really driven by the fact that on the one hand, doctors just don't have time. Right. To, to really sit with a patient for, I mean, if he's functional. It's, it's just so many patients. It's just like, yeah. Exactly. So it's lack of time, but also lack of knowledge. And um, if, if you look at how much time doctors in their uh, education spend on nutritional science, mm. what is it? Three hours all over their, their mm. whole stuff. You know, so. and um, is, it, is it a liability thing as well, to a degree? That the, the medical professionals are maybe concerned about making recommendations on a on a lifestyle basis because of, you know, you, Probably. Probably. they could get sued, you know. I mean, the world we live in now, everybody is so scared of everything. Yeah. That, um, there's a very basic sense of courage to tell a patient that is insulin resistant that there's a diet that will actually reverse insulin resistance and will prevent diabetes two from manifesting. Mm. That's a fact. Yeah. But that is not something that a doctor would be comfortable to tell their patients because there will be some legal team of a big pharmaceutical company potentially making their life hell. And mm. that is really that is really the big problem. But, um, 
And it, it, so I, you, you probably know that I that the really the, the reason for for starting this project is really my personal story that I have had. Yes, which I do I do want to ask you to recount yeah. to me because it was yeah. But feel yeah. free to to delve into that if you if it's a problem. Yeah. So essentially, the the motivation for this project is really my own um, my own experience. I um I always differentiate between my old life and my new life. In my old life, I um. So I'm German. I came to London to the UK to have some work experience in finance here, and um, and so my old life was very much driven by the done thing, everything you know how it should be. I was married, and um, but I was um, it was already a long time ago. It was March 2004 that I fell ill, and it turned out I had an inflammation of the brain, and um, that was a time when uh, the neurologist that I saw that did my brain scan uh, simply said to me, there's nothing I can do for you, and so that was for me then the decision once I had decided I wanted to live. I can tell you that was not fun months that followed, and then I literally started to read anything and everything, tried stuff out, because it was at that stage, obvious, there was no pharmaceutical intervention. It's it's essentially an autoimmune neurodegenerative disease. So neurodegeneration means your brain is uh, progressively failing. And um, so I just read and tried stuff out and I came across random things and I had nothing to lose. So then 15 years later, my brain is working again. Um, and suddenly the whole world makes sense again. And I then studied for an MSc in functional medicine, personalized nutrition, just to understand my illness, also my return to function. Um, and so that's really the basis of uh, the passion for, for this project and um, to really understand how much knowledge is out there. But it is such a different paradigm in the sense that functional medicine is not a you go and see a doctor, you say, I have this, the doctor says, take this pill, bye-bye. But functional medicine is very much about having quite a conversation, going into what actually happened and taking a holistic view. So mm. letting go of the concept, holistic is just weird hippie homeopathy bullshit, but actually we are one system. That's just mm. a rational approach to being human. Um, and um, so on, on that on that journey, I really uh, realized that there's so much knowledge out there and prevention in the Alzheimer's context is really the only way um, uh, because Alzheimer's is a highly individual, highly complex disease. And once that has manifested, there by now have been 100 patients that have returned from cognitive impairment to cognitive function with a very intense one-to-one -one consultations with neurologists which are rare, these neurologists, and highly, incredibly expensive. That's not attainable to all. But this illness is really a risk to all. And um, yeah, so on this journey, I realized there's so much data available and we just need to make it accessible to people who um, don't necessarily have the courage and the, the confidence to go to pubmed.gov and read scientific papers and go through, that's me, or that's not me, you know? Um, mm. So yeah, you, you can tell it's it's, it's my passion so i'm i'm sorry if i'm waffling <laughs> that's the idea that's the idea you waffle as much as you like there's no problem um yeah well i mean it's, it's, i remember when you first told me that story i was stunned by it you know it's um such an incredible story how, how many years did you say it was it took to, you to um, get... so diagnosis was uh, 2004 and then by 2017 um i was probably 
cognitively at a stage of full function. Mm. Um, and I, I, I definitely had and still have a little bit of uh, physical impairments. So my right side was very badly affected. Um, but um, yeah, so it, it really took um, way over 10 years um, just trial and error. And of course, if somebody would have given me an app like that, so my disease was not dementia, autoimmune, but the concept is very much the same, um, mm -hmm. that to feed the right nutrients and avoid the inflammatory stuff. That That is really the very fundamental uh, mm -hmm. concept. Um, and um, so if, if somebody would have had this magical app that I'm now uh, developing for me, that would have taken me three months to get back to life. Because yeah. a lot of the, the, the time you spent was actually doing the research. And I imagine while you're cognitively impaired, doing that research is even more difficult, right? You know, it's so funny that only now that I'm thinking about it, that I'm talking about it in this whole founders context, and people ask me, so how were you able to do that? And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. in hindsight, that was probably the one thing I focused my energy on. So everything else, I, I forgot. I forgot my pins, I lost stuff. I didn't make any sense anymore. I didn't understand the most fundamental concepts, but for some reason, well, of course I didn't go through scientific papers beginning to end and figure out the statistic significance and all that, but it was very much abstract introduction, conclusion, and then thinking, is that me? I'm gonna try it out, you know? Right. So it was yeah. the nothing to lose. <laughs> Let's go yeah. for it. You weren't exactly, you weren't, so you weren't like absorbing huge amounts of data and, and then mm. you were kind of looking at more the summarization of these, yeah. these papers. Right. Very much, sense. very much um, really looking for the actionable intervention because mm. I didn't have anyone to talk about this with either. You know, I was completely by myself and my husband was very supportive. He, of course, dealt with his own stuff. And so he gave me the the time and space, if you will, to do that. But I was completely by myself. I was trying out anything and everything. And um, obviously nothing killed me. Um, and, and of course, now I have very much this approach um, looking at something. Is that reasonable? Does it make sense? Is there data showing toxicity? Is there data showing uh, what is the upper tolerable limit, whatever nutrient it is? And then really going for it and very much applying my commonsensical approach in combination with what I learned in my MSc to not mm. go completely rogue. Um, but of course, back then it was just me. I only had responsibility for myself. It was not that I was giving guidance to anyone else. So it was not that I was thinking I might kill people, um, but it was, it was just, you know, nothing to lose and try and step out. Yeah. Um, by the way, your internet connection is a little unstable. You're cutting out every now and then, not too often, but just a little bit. So I don't know if you've got any, another network you want to try or anything, but ju just to let you know, but, um, but, but don't worry about it too much. If not, it's fine. Uh, I, um, yeah, it's fine. It's up to you. It's a, a little bit. If, if it's easy for you to switch to another network or something, great. But otherwise, don't worry about it. Um, so you mentioned that, you know, what were the things that you were, what you were doing then? What lifestyle changes did you make? I mean, I'm assuming you didn't have a particularly unhealthy lifestyle prior to this. Um, hello? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. I lost you oh. there for a moment. Sorry. No worries. So no, I was just asking, um, 
you know, what, what sort of changes did you make and what, what, what sort of data did you gather? And, 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 you know, what was this? Was it predominantly dietary? Um, were there some unhealthy habits that you had prior that you, you decided to kick? You know, what, what, what did that all look like? Am I back? Yes, you are. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the, you're asking uh, what changes I made. So it was yeah, really yeah. the, I mean, in hindsight, uh, it was, but of course that took me a long time to figure it out. In hindsight, it was gluten, dairy, and egg. These three food proteins that were upregulating my immunity, um, really the mechanism is that my immune system was simply mistaking uh, the gluten protein, the casein protein, so that is from milk, and both egg white and egg yolk, mistaking that for an, a foreign invader. And so autoimmunity is really the concept, if, if you think of a, a war, this complete chaos and friendly fire, where troops mm. attack their own troops because they don't, they cannot even differentiate anymore. And so that's really what autoimmunity is, that I was constantly eating gluten, dairy, and egg, and my small intestine couldn't actually deal with it. So it all ended up in my bloodstream. So the, the small intestine being the place where nutrients should get into the bloodstream. But if the small intestine is a bit injured, if you will, too much gets into the bloodstream. And that's really when, when this constantly upregulates its uh, immunity and, and inflammation and inflammatory process starts. So um, yeah, so in hindsight, if I would have right away figured out gluten, dairy, and egg to avoid, to have, to, to increase their, my vitamin D level. That was depleted to an extent, it was almost non-existent. And vitamin D is such a hugely important factor in uh, neurological health, but also immunity and, and bone health and really everything. So mm. I would probably say in hindsight, it was really foods to avoid, foods to eat, to replenish um, and probably my microbiome a huge a huge topic as well and um, mm. that that was very much affected by many years of antibiotics um, and that of course um, every, I think by now the the term gut brain connection is is quite well known and yes. uh, in community and anything brain related the microbiome is likely quite badly affected and and usually overgrown with pathogens so then to remove pathogens and to replenish probiotics and that was also quite a quite an interesting journey but yeah so in hindsight it was really just a few things to do and um of course exercise that is only something that very recently i started because i simply i didn't i i didn't have the confidence and i didn't think i could actually move um, but I broke my ankle only in summer 21, I want to say. So back here, that's my x-ray. Um, and right. that, <laughs> that was the trigger for me to go to the gym. And that was another huge paradigm change in terms of building muscle, building strength, uh, which is hugely important for the brain as well. So, mm. yeah, in the beginning when I simply didn't have any any ability, if that makes any sense. It was very much food uh, and nutrient focused and then then progressively focusing on sleep 
of course, the stress level was not work stress, but life stress, you know, as in mm. where is it going? And, and now exercise. So it's, it's a very much an all-in situation. Yeah, the way, like you mentioned, very holistic, right? But um, so, so the, the, you mentioned about gluten, dairy, and eggs there, um, mm. and as it relates to the small intestine. So, did you have prior issues with small in, with your small intestine, or is this something that that could happen to anyone who eats excessive amounts of gluten, dairy, and, and eggs? In your opinion? Um, so, I guess first of all, um, it's very individual. So everybody right. will have their own uh, own food proteins that they they are intolerant to. Um, mm. My personal opinion is gluten and dairy is likely not good for any human but that is a very inflammatory statement to make so i will deny ever having said that and <laughs> it's a very but, but, I'm, but i'm hearing that increasingly more and more from from people you know um from even medical professionals now saying you know if you're going to eat it at least really make it a small very very small part of your diet overall yeah yeah i'm always very happy to to hear that because um mm -hmm. And the interesting thing with nutrition is really it's, it's a very black and white world. There are people want to be right. People want to tell you, do that, do that. The it's not that about, simple. And it never is that simple. Mm. But um, yeah, to your question. So egg is a personal thing for me. Um, and I would say anyone who tolerates egg well, it's the most magical food. It's high in uh, the best. I'm fats. so glad you said that because I was very That's concerned me. that I would have to miss out on eggs. I love eggs. <laughs> this the perfect and nutritionally strategy. amazing right i mean that that is the one thing that i miss from mm, from my life. um but um gluten and dairy that is really i mean i'm not starving and especially the uk has this amazing um uh, this whole food industry if you will of young progressive businesses that produce high quality organic wonderfulness that is so tasty and mm. um, without gluten without dairy so many things i can eat and whenever people say like oh my god eat now it's like i look like i'm starving <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're very fortunate we've got a lot of um, well also amazing startups doing incredible things yeah. in, in terms of yeah. food like you said so yeah. yeah yeah super interesting it reminds me a lot as well especially you mentioned about the gut biome um thing which which i'm interested to explore a bit as well um you remind me of a, a recent episode I, I recorded it hasn't been released yet with um a wonderful lady by the name of beata lerman um who uh, you know spent many many years in the medical profession doing amazing things working on cancer treatments she actually developed a cancer treatment and her story is fascinating i, I strongly recommend when when that episode comes out, comes out, you listen to it because her journey is incredible and another very inspirational woman like yourself, um, in my opinion. I, I might even introduce you actually at some point because oh, I think you should you should speak. And you'd get along, I think. You have a lot a lot of similar things. So she worked on on the cancer. You know, she worked on um, cancer treatments. She developed a cancer treatment, a very unique one, and then very ironically, she found out her, that she had um, the exact cancer she was she was working on treating. Um, yeah. And her and she decided to change her entire lifestyle. Obviously, she was fortunate enough she could use her own treatment, but then uh, which helped. But also um, a huge part of what she did was change her diet, an enormous part or a lifestyle as a whole, but diet especially. And the big thing for her was cutting out glucose, you know, sugar gone um, because of the uh, essentially that's food for cancer, which I, I didn't and I didn't know until I spoke to her. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and carbohydrates as a whole, right? Sugars as a whole. So, so this this was something she was explaining to me. And and her startup is you wouldn't believe what it is. She's created a chocolate company, 
um, sugar-free chocolate and the, the best tasting sugar-free chocolate is, is sinless, uh, sinless, sinless treats. So it's called, yes, yeah, sinless treats. Um, oh. because, because she loved chocolate and then she, suddenly she couldn't have it. And she was eating all of these sugar-free chocolates and she was like, oh, these are shit. <laughs> I can do better. So she took a scientific approach to it as a, a, from a chemistry perspective. And, um, and she's like, yeah, like the Willy Wonka, <laughs> incredible woman. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely introduce you, but it reminded me of that because of the reason why is because of the, the journey, you know, uh, uh, similarities, but also because she, we spoke for two hours, like we're going to do as well. And, and by the end of it, she said, we didn't even have time to talk about the gut biome, um, right. which is another enormous, uh, you know, factor. And I, what I wanted to say to that was, and, and ask her about was the fact that I hear a lot of information in relation to, I watch, you know, some things on YouTube by doctors and so on. And they talk a lot about how the body is very good at self-regulating a lot of those sort of things. So you know, what, what have you learned in your sort of research uh, on this journey about the gut biome in relation to that? You mentioned, obviously, that taking antibiotics can affect it, but doesn't the body bounce back by itself, um, provided you're, you're living a fairly healthy lifestyle? Um, or does it need a bit of a, a push, especially when it comes to the gut biome side of things? I would probably say um, the world we live in is, is a place where nothing naturally bounces back anymore and um, that is really that that really makes it just incredibly difficult and only our grandparents lived in a completely different world in terms of all the toxins that we're now surrounded by not just glyphosate but anything and everything uh, and that that really is very specifically uh, really attacking, destroying the uh, the microbes in our uh, gut microbiome. But there are so many other factors as well that really make it incredibly difficult. In my case, and that's not unusual at all, I was born by cesarean. I was not breastfed. And that is the start of the microbiome. So mm. any infant will receive the mother's microbiome if they are born naturally. And what happens during that process that's different from cesarean? Um, because uh, the mother's microbiome is transferred to the child into the child's orifices when the child goes through the vaginal canal. Right, okay, interesting. So a fetus is uh, completely sterile in the uterus and only in the process of birth they, they will have their microbiome inoculated. So um, being born by cesarean means I was born sterile, and um, there's the saying by the neurologists that have worked on the microbiome, a baby that is born by cesarean, they start their life with a microbiome that is the stuff that's stuck to the surgeon's hands. Right. And that is not a healthy, uh, varied microbiome. And uh, the next step to receive more uh, commensal bacteria is really breast milk. And I wasn't mm -hmm. breastfed either. So that was the start, which was challenging. Of course, I mean, that was a long time ago. So nobody really talked about that, knew about that. And mm -hmm. um, then over my life, lots of antibiotics. And, um, and that, of course, they take out the commensal bacteria. And with that, give so much um, room for pathogens to overgrow. And so it was kind of a, an accumulation of really unfortunate events. Um, but to your question, why doesn't the microbiome really, why doesn't it just bounce back? I think everybody's different. That's, of course, the, the one thing to always keep in mind. And certain nutritions are incredibly helpful for supporting the microbiome, being that yogurt, fermented foods like kimchi, apple cider vinegar, and so many things that can naturally support the microbiome. 
but um, so many people have a diet that includes heavily processed foods um, where really problematic substances are uh, really taken in on a daily basis. And when a problematic substance, various, um, various substances that are supposed to improve the texture of food, the look, the um, of course the, uh, the the ability to to re retain freshness, you know, and all these things ha can have a very strong negative impact on the microbiome. So. I always find it very interesting to look at the macro picture of nations where level levels of health are different to the classic Western world. I mean, mm. the US with the standard American diet, they of course are the extreme end of human destruction, if you will. Mm. Um, but then other nations that have a much more natural, old, old school way of living, much closer to how our grandparents lived. They have a different level of illness. And then, of course, Japan is an incredibly interesting place where certain illnesses are very, very rare that are very common in the West. Um, mm -hmm. So in, in Japan, fermented foods like kimchi, like um, probiotics, fermented soy. I mean, that's a that's a food that's kind of a, you know, acquired taste natto. Mm. I heard that it smells like the devil himself. I have I have tried it before. It's the most horrendous thing I think I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> That's what I heard. <laughs> that is apparently magical for the microbiome. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm. So. <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's funny. I, I um after speaking with um, Beata because we spoke about food as well, obviously a lot, and I I, I had this thought um in the days afterwards that's kind of stuck with me that supermarkets are are all wrong right um not only because of the fact that they stock processed food number one like removing that even if they didn't stock processed foods um they're all laid out wrong they shouldn't be aisles that say fruit and veg and meat and dairy etc they should be um organized based on the health benefits um according to the body and there should be a certain amount of guidance as when you're within a supermarket um, I, I personally envisage this as the future of shopping, right? You know, where maybe we've got an app or something and you're going around and you're you're fulfilling all the needs of your body um, mm. based on your shopping process. So your shopping isn't isn't like I need bread, I need milk, I need these things. Instead, it's, it's you're fulfilling all the needs, your your monthly dietary requirements for your for your full body function as you shop and you don't finish your shop until you've ticked all those boxes. And that's how shopping should be. You know what I mean? Like, in my opinion, you know, like, you know, the app will say you haven't purchased anything to help support your um, your immune system or your gut, you know, uh, you know, health or something like that. That's what it should be like. You know, I, I it boggles my mind that we haven't got there yet, but maybe we will one day. Yeah, I, I hope so. But I think um, there are, of course, corporate interests that don't quite align with that. Right. And at the same time, the if you look at the foods that are really cheap and that are really affordable um, are the worst ones. I mean, if you look at the aisles of breakfast cereals, there are no words for that. I mean, it's mm. just horrificness beginning to end. And in that context, I, I mean, sooner or later, when you speak with me, sooner or later, I will always say something terribly unsavory because that's just Good. how I am. 
Good. <laughs> I, me too. <laughs> I say a lot of things that piss people off. I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. You know, I don't. Yes, why we're friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, essentially, why um, every or it's just so completely normalized to have breakfast cereals, cornflakes, or all these fruit loops, all these things. Mm. Um, which is of course complete artificial food that doesn't exist didn't exist with our grandparents, um, and that apparently, and I think that's more than an urban myth because I think it's just too genius to make it up, and that was really um, a product started by uh, Kellogg himself, mm. who had this beautiful thought that um, little boys masturbate too much. We need to stop them from doing that. And what right. is the best way to stop anyone to have any sort of sex drive that is reduce their testosterone? So breakfast cereals, any cereal reduces testosterone. So now Mr. Kellogg has achieved his goal. If you look at the global testosterone levels, how they have dropped over the last 50 years, it's not even funny anymore. Mm. And, but I just love it so much to think that he was sitting in his office and thinking like, mm, these little boys. genius. Yeah. Mm, having too much fun, I feel like this, this is not how God intended. And to to I think I think I'd heard that before. I, I I'd also heard that um, essentially breakfast wasn't considered a standard part of a, a daily routine until really Kellogg yeah. came along. And yeah. before that, people just ate when they were hungry. Like if, if they woke up and they were like, "Oh, I'm a bit hungry," then they would eat something. But they would usually be, you know, more traditional breakfast. Like you know, they might fry some eggs and some meats, and you know, maybe maybe use some leftovers in the fridge from dinner or something like that. They, that's what they would eat. You know, vegetables, fruit, things like that. Um, but you know, Kellogg's. I, from what I understand, the history of that, it was more of a surplus um, uh, product issue where he had a lot of surplus product and was just like, "I need to do something with this. What can we do with it?" Um, I think it may have even been part of a waste product, even um, if memory serves. I, I can't quite remember something that wasn't selling anyway, and and mm. it was just like let's make another product line. But I had also, I think that rings a bell what you said as well about that. That, that might be a bit of an old wives' tale, but that's interesting. So, what what component of that uh, of of something like uh, a breakfast cereal could could in any way affect testosterone? Is that just the the increase in carbohydrates? Or, or um, how, how I would say. It's definitely sugar intake. Sugar is inflammatory. That is the the first thing. Um, but, it, the, but Kellogg's cornflakes were were sugar free products originally. Um, the carbs will convert. Into oh right, sugar. okay, yeah, yeah. And um, so very quickly. Yeah. Um, and um, and of course, um, anything with cereals with grains contains glutinous proteins. Mm. These are um, again inflammatory, and um, I guess the testosterone pathways. That is, I mean, the hormone, the whole hormone cascade is incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. um, but now thinking about that, essentially, what might be specifically reducing testosterone? Possibly, possibly, and pathway definitely is the inflammatory pathway, but also, um, you may have heard about that, that um, in ancient Rome, um, the slaves were felt, felt, uh, fed grains, so the cheapest food ever. Mm -hmm. um, and so that fattens them up and gives them energy quickly. Doesn't last long, but quick energy and then refeeding constantly with cheap stuff. So I think possibly it is also the sense of 
uh, or yeah, loss of energy. Yeah, I, I, I cannot tell you exactly what the pathway is or the mechanism is that reduces testosterone in this context. Um, I, I should look that up now. Yeah, now I'm it'd be interesting to know. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, uh, you know, that's that, it, my understanding of that sort of biochemistry is quite a modern discovery in a lot of ways. Anyway, so mm -hmm. I, I, I can't imagine that a guy who owns a farm full of, um, you know, full of grain would necessarily know that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so there's maybe not an, not a lot of truth in that, but, but, um, but it's an interesting story anyway, because if apparently he was a bit of a religious fanatic, so that, yeah. but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's worrying, isn't it? The amount, uh, the, the effects that a lot of these foods that we've, because, because of, you know, when we think about grains, especially that these, these things were produced on mass predominantly to feed cattle initially right as as human be beings become settlers the agriculture was predominantly around animal produce right mm -hmm. that was the original sort of main main mm. objective was mm. what well, we need our meat to be closer we can't keep chasing it around all the fucking time that's not that's not very conducive so they just you know put it in and then well we need now a, a sustainable food source for them and then the byproduct of that was hey this is also something else we can eat on a larger scale too um but of course the main purpose of that is like you pointed out to feel full the nutritional value isn't quite there so it's useful for a society who is going through hard times who can't necessarily afford to eat fresh meat all the time and so on to have a substitute in order to have a full belly uh, you know especially if you've got a poorer part of your society yeah. um but um yeah that that it's kind of obvious when you think about it it's just a substitute for feeling full it's not a nutritional substitute um, so it's no wonder a lot of medical professionals, including yourself, are coming out and saying things like this. You know, non-surprising. So, so tell me about um, what were you doing prior to all of this? You, you touched on that very briefly right at the beginning. What were you doing prior to to, to your diagnosis and then and sort of going on this journey? Um, it was really that. Um, so coming to London, that was my first job. So that was in 2001. Right. I had studied um, finance and I came here for a job in investment banking, and um, so. At that stage, I was a very normal German, doing the right. German thing, doing the right thing, doing what was expected of me, you know? Right. Um, so as you can tell, I'm a very, very different person now. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, so that was really, and when I fell ill, I had just um, been here for just a very few years. And um, that was a very drastic um, change, of course, in my life that I was very acute so the symptoms of brain inflammation for me were double vision um but also loss of balance loss of mm. energy very drastically my energy levels dropped very much and then progressively with illness my um it, now the term brain fog is quite common so mm. it was very very foggy um sense inability to concentrate inability to to focus to to really think things through um and at the same time my my physical strength just reduced mm. and so yeah that that was really before um so, so that was really before my illness and then I, I worked for a few more years and then I just it just wasn't possible anymore. I was I was it was just not making any sense anymore. Mm. And then it did not work for quite a few years and I just focused on trying to come back to life somehow. Um, and so then the switch to studying a completely different fields and now doing something entirely different. So I always 
refer to my old life and my new life. Mm. And that really, the, my new life really started once I was, I left banking. So I had quite a big break um, when I did not work at all. And then I, I joined another bank with a much, much less demanding, much less stressy job, just really to have structure in my day, which is so important. Mm. Um, but when I left that um, at the end of 2018, and then I started to study. Uh, and since then, I'm a completely different person and that my brain is properly working now. And of course, that coincided with, with my divorce. So I just had to be an individual again. There was not anyone there 24-7 who took care of me. Mm. But I just had to uh, do stuff physically and mentally. Um, and uh, that was... It was not a fun time, I can tell you that. Mm. But in hindsight, it was the best thing that happened because if I wouldn't have been forced to really restart my life, become an individual, really figure things out by myself. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe, like, and share your thoughts in the comments. I never would have. I, without, without brute force, this sort of change couldn't have happened. Mm. And um, so, yeah, so that, that that's now where I am now. And while things are very different and certainly not any easier um, in the sense that, um, I'm sure you know very well, working for by yourself, um, it is this, it's a lonely business. It's incredibly tough to, to um, achieve things when, if you're not in 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 a team where people are there, so you're constantly trying to get people on board, trying to make things happen, and um, but at the same time, um, it is for me such a magical experience to be in a place where I connect with people now, which I never did in my whole life. That was entirely mm -hmm. based on who do you work for, which transactions are you working on, who are you, which car do you drive, to now what's your startup what's your passion what's happening what are you interested in how do you spend your spare time and so actual people and actual conversations and actual connections mm. and you have conversations just super short conversations with people and of course alzheimer's is a topic that pretty much everybody's affected by people immediately tell me my grandfather my grandmother I am scared because I have been told I have this one gene variant, whatever it is. And suddenly to have from zero to a hundred meaningful conversations with people, that to me is still magical. Mm, yeah. I mean, and, and I totally agree with you on that, that last point about the magic of, of human connection. To be honest, it's entire, it's one of the main reasons why I do this. Um, I because if it's, yeah, yeah, because it's it's you know it's it's like you said for all the reasons you mentioned you know running your own business can be quite a solitary experience, um, you know very demanding and, and all the other things and having doing this is my therapy you know you know being able to speak with people and learn about people is is it, yeah honestly it's fun, it's fantastic and and I learn a lot not only about the individual you know and I found find people fascinating like yourself but um yeah. but also um. I learn a lot about about the topics, you know. So you know, from you and and, and so on. So yeah, I, I totally see that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot. It sounds, it sounds like a lot, you know. You a divorce in of itself as well, you know. Just even that experience is a very transformative experience for a lot of people. I mean, you, you know, you, you. How long were you married for? Um, or well, he proposed a week 
was diagnosed with brain inflammation. Right, so that was okay. pretty much a response now that I understand the difference he fought with. He had an, an issue with his family, so he, he felt that he had to take care of somebody else that made him valuable as a person. I didn't want to say anything bad about him. He was such a huge part of my whole healing journey, so he's dealing mm. with his own stuff. But, um, of course, yeah, divorce is not great. That, that, no, of course not. And, and what I was kind of getting at there is, you know, what's so transformative about that for most a lot of people who I've known who've gone through divorce or even just a, a breakup after a very long relationship, which I've been myself, is, you know, you build a mythology together throughout your life. Your identity is tied with someone else's identity, essentially. So you don't, you know, you share an identity. Um, especially if you have children and you've built a home and so on, you know, that identity is very much, you know, I am like for me right now, you know, part of my identity is I'm a father and I'm a husband and I'm a business owner. Like, you know, that, those three things, those, those, you know, things. So, so when you do go through that sort of process, then there's a, an identity crisis that can come about there and a rediscovery. And so not only you doing that um, by itself is an incredibly, you know, admirable thing to come out the side of in, in a positive way, but also through your, through your medical, uh, you know, challenges as well. So, yeah, what was the, what was the official diagnosis, if there was one? Um, because you mentioned obviously brain inflammation. Is is that yeah. is that what it is, or is there? Is no, there that's a, just a symptom. So uh, yeah, uh, so essentially now, I live in the UK. Here, people are not being judged and sidelined for having chronic illness. In Germany, right. I would be on the. I would I would just be a non-human anymore. So um, really? my illness wow. is, is a very serious illness. It's uh, MS, multiple sclerosis, right. and, and uh, brain inflammation. That was my first symptom. Um, the disease is incredibly volatile and versatile. So there are so many different uh, symptoms, different issues. That was my first tangible symptom. In hindsight, I had over the years so many small things, uh, loss of sensation, loss of strength. Of course, in hindsight, I could never say what the mechanism was and um, but so when i i for a long time always said i had encephalitis of the brain stem which is the first symptom but that was really for a long time to confuse people because i didn't want to say it's ms because that of course has this huge stigma like she's mm -hmm. going to die you know and she's disabled and that is something that i now carry as a badge of if that makes any sense i can say i have this disease i will have it forever but if i make the right choices every day i'm going to be fine and i firmly know that i'm going to be fine and um, and there are a few other people in the world that have ms that are managing it entirely with food and lifestyle and of course uh, one of them terry walls has uh, written a book uh, it was a huge inspiration for me to to understand to to simply have the courage to do that to mm -hmm. have the to defend it against other people who only want your best they want to send you to the best doctor there is where you can say like no the best one will kill me just like the worst one would i have to do that myself and um, yeah so th th that is really that was really my journey to only be able to to talk about it to acknowledge it mm. in the uk in germany i still very much deal in a very cagey way because i would be judged as an why is she not in a wheelchair? And or even to the extent that I would 
probably say some people that are kind of close to me in a family context, I don't think they ever believed me that I was ill. So oh, to wow. that extent, that it's very, very fixed-minded. Um, well, because, because the symptoms weren't as obvious compared to other cases of more severe MS. Well, they, I, I, I fell ill here. Uh, my, right, so they didn't see a lot. Of... They didn't, nobody really saw anything other than my husband. He saw the whole thing. And right. that was, in itself, probably traumatizing. So, mm. um, but, and, and of course now, you, if you would see me walk, I, when I have done a million things, I might likely limp with my right leg. Um, or if I'm having a super stressy time, handwriting looks like that of a five-year-old. But if I'm all good and all happy and I haven't eaten anything that was not a good idea, I have the neatest handwriting, I, I walk like a, not really like a ballet dancer, but you know what I mean. So, but <laughs> um, it is much about outlook and um, being around people that don't judge me mm. and being around people that don't treat me like, ew, you're a weirdo, but no. And that is the amazing thing about being in the UK that people here have a different mindset um, to, to how, how people deal with, uh, with adversity. With mm. um, I've had it so many times that um, in my new life, so I'm now doing everything by myself and there are certain things I love doing. I love music, so I go clubbing. And um, every now and then when, um, when I'm... I, I really don't feel like talking to somebody. And if, if people think, like, so what's wrong with you? And usually I say I have a broken ankle, which shuts people up. But sometimes people are more inquisitive in this really not nice way. And then I say, I have brain damage. And the other day somebody said to me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> How magical is that? Yeah, yeah. Where nobody just tries to pretend anything. And, and then we just sat in this place and the DJ amazing and we just talked about brain damage and i thought that was just absolutely absolutely magical <laughs> yeah and you're right i mean I, I i very i'm very appreciative of the uk for its um well for, for a lot of reasons and i i get i i defend it quite um vigorously especially mostly from people from the uk who complain about this country yeah. a lot yeah. and i and i don't understand it i think you really need to understand how lucky you you are to to be british and to live in this country because my god like compared to a lot of other countries and you know yeah. just even just looking at you know a lot of the way people we, we talk about our politicians and things like that yeah okay politicians can be slimy bank pieces of shit, but compared to a lot of other politicians around the world, we, we could be doing a lot worse. <laughs> um, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so um, what was I going to ask you? Uh, there's a million things I want to ask you, so I'm getting more confused in my head. So, so um, going back to uh, what you, well, yeah, the, 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 the journey and, and where was, I, where was I going with this? Yes, yeah, so, so, so jumping forward to now then, so um, you've got your, oh no, that was what I was going to ask you just really quick before I jump to that. Um, why Alzheimer's then? Because if, if your diagnosis was MS and, you know, you were you're talking about why did you, I understand, you know, that there are some similarities there, but why didn't you want to maybe go with um, sort of making Vastitude focused, uh, sorry, Vastitude um, focused on, on, on helping individuals with MS? Um. You know, the, the interesting thing is um, any autoimmune condition, 
um, has a whole plethora of pharmaceutical interventions. These are all right. immunosuppressant drugs. So that means that um, it is simply that the immune system of the patient is being suppressed. With that, the autoimmune reaction, of course, decreases, but the other underlying disease process is still there. And with that, I would get myself into a huge fight with any pharmaceutical industry company, mm. and they would steamroll me. That would so not. So, were you being prescribed a lot of medications, or still, or maybe still are? Or, or for, for None any? at all. None, None at all. Okay. And the neurologist that did my brain scan, he was very old school. Um, he was literally probably seventy years old, and mm. uh, he was from a time when there was simply no medication because it was absolutely accepted. There is no patient's intervention for chronic illness with medication. And um, so that's from a time when neurologists would, would do diagnosis and adios. So that was all they could do. They could diagnose and then send the patient away. And luckily, I had one of those because at that time, I could have been subscribed uh, immunosuppressant drugs and I wouldn't have known any better and I would have taken them and I wouldn't be here mm. now. And, um, and would that and would that be the normal yeah. sort of situ situation? Yeah. So most people in your situation would be prescribed them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah definitely, definitely. Mm. And I was so lucky that I wasn't. Um, but that's really, um, on the one hand, while uh, neurological autoimmune um, uh, diseases are definitely on the rise, um, Alzheimer's is, is this global epidemic. And at the same time, what has appealed to me so much was that it is very much in the public domain. Alzheimer's is preventable with food and lifestyle. But while that is the general message, there is no structured way of actually accessing that information, actually making it actionable for mm. people. And um, so that was really the reason. And I, um, I guess my big passion for Alzheimer's prevention happened with, um, I came across a certain mineral um, when I was uh, researching for my uh, dissertation. And um, that mineral uh, is incredibly interesting and I would always argue incredibly promising in the context of supporting prevention uh, of Alzheimer's disease. And um, But there, of course, there are no large-scale clinical trials because it's going to fund a mineral that can't be patented. Um, what what is the mineral? Um, it's lithium. Right. It's the car battery stuff. But um, mm -hmm. the, 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 the reason really why I wrote my dissertation about that um, was really I came across so many uh, pieces of uh, observational data, so epidemiological data showing that in certain parts of the world where lithium is in the groundwater, so lithium is just a mineral, like magnesium, manganese, it's just stuff in the, in the, in the soil, in the groundwater. And in regions of the world, there is more lithium in the soil. Um, it all started with um, Texas, uh, Sardinia, and of course, uh, Chile, Argentina, um, where, where the big lithium mines are. Um, so various areas in the world um, where in communities where there's lithium in the tap water uh, supply versus in very similar communities close by that have very similar socioeconomic structures without lithium in tap water. Um, so it was showing that the level of suicide, homicide, addiction, violent behavior and dementia is significantly lower 
places where there's lithium in the groundwater. And with that, not just groundwater, but of course, in vegetable, in mm. anything you consume. And that's when I, I just thought like, that is fascinating. And that's not just one place in the world, that is really in all places in the world there, I think there are over 20 of these observational studies showing that very consistently. Um, and that's really when I started to dive into that subject. And so in the um, functional medicine context, you would never look at pharmaceuticals. So the lithium that is given to bipolar patients that is a very, very high uh, content of elemental lithium. And it's usually lithium carbonate or lithium chloride or one of those compounds. And um, these are considered pharmaceutical. And the compound lithium orotate is defined as a food supplement. It's orotic acid. So it's just a matter of how is that mineral bound. Mm. And so the food supplement lithium orotate that is really what I looked into and um, in very, very, very small doses. Um, this has an amazing effect on certain pathways in the body. On the one hand, it is down-regulating certain kinase that is upregulated in all chronic diseases. And on the other hand, very specifically for the brain, it um, supports the production of BDNF, that's brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is brain food. And um, so I started uh, researching for that dissertation a long time ago. And since then, I have been taking five milligrams of uh, lithium every single day. And it has a hugely balancing effect on mood in these small amounts. I mean, five milligrams versus 360 of a bipolar patient. And of mm. course, in 360, uh, in that doses, bipolar patients have thyroid, kidney, gastrointestinal problems, um, but with five milligrams, that this is this is what you would take in if you would live in an area where that is in groundwater. Uh, mm. um, and so in on that journey, I really realized there's so much information out there on Alzheimer's while there is no efficacious prevention or cure in the pharmaceutical context simply because the disease is incredibly uh, diverse. Um, no two Alzheimer's patients will be the same. There are mm. five different types, and one patient will have it more than at least, usually more than two. And, um, so, but that is, of course, patients or people that are patients already. And I always say, I don't want people to become patients. So to catch before anything manifests. And mm. um, yeah, it was really the research journey to realize how much information is out there in this food and lifestyle context for brain health, specifically Alzheimer's, and Alzheimer's is just this huge global market. Um, and um, the huge economic cost, total economic cost and total emotional cost uh, mm. to have a loved one with that disease is just insanity, if you Absolutely. will. So, so how can you be certain um, a change is having a, an effect? Because you mentioned about the, the introduction of uh, five milligrams of um, lithium. How can you be certain that that's having the effect that you think it has when you've also made so many other changes to your lifestyle? Like that must be a very difficult thing to measure, right? I mean, the only real, I suppose, scientific way of approaching that is to only make one change every six months and then yeah. record that one small change. But of course, we don't do that as human beings. We make a lot of changes all at once in our lifestyle yeah. to complement each other. You know, like I'm going to start going to the gym and eat healthy. And and within that one, those two decisions, there's infinite amounts of like details. So how can you be certain of that? Or, or is it just a bit of a hunch really more than anything else? Um, it, it's very interesting 
say that for over the 15 years when I tried to come out of the darkness, I mm -hmm. called myself my own um, clinical trial. Um, because right. of course in the beginning, I just introduced new things one by one and saw what happened. Um, now I have a little protocol, if you will, of, of supplements or foods that I focus on to make enough magnesium and of course vitamin D and K and so a few basic things yeah as you say how can we be sure that uh, lithium actually makes a difference and um, so on the one hand I of course tried it out what happens if I take it for a week then cut it out for a week and of course a one week is not necessarily the scientific washout period but of just course. to see what happens and I could I definitely notice in myself um, that if I run out so I didn't order enough or I forgot and um, I definitely notice in myself and um, at the same time of course I could not I could not give uh, call that a scientific uh, scientific approach to that sure, so, that's very that's very much anecdotal sort of yeah, evidence, right? it's, yeah. it's very much me and um, yeah. I I when I speak with friends that are interested in that I always give them the papers to read make get to your own conclusion about that um any food supplements free, freely available so that is not anything with any um any problematic context if you will of course you, you could probably kill yourself with too much magnesium as well um but so it is very much that i try stuff on my i listen to myself and i have so learned if something makes me feel better if that is entirely based on um on positive thinking of on projection on the placebo effect mm. if something makes me feel better that's all good i would probably say now so if you would have met me 10 years ago when i was probably well my darkest times were probably 2015 16 um versus now you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't necessarily realize that that's the same person um mm. as i'm but of course i yeah to your question i cannot show you um blood tests showing the progression or sure, all of sure. is the the mri scan from when i was very ill and i haven't done another mri scan yet considering that while it's not radiation but it's still very very strong magnetic field on the brain so i'm thinking well i'm very very curious what my brain looks like now um I not yet but yeah I, i'm absolutely with you that's why i'm very very careful with anything that doesn't have a very very clear evidence based so mm. everything that i'm using for for my app is very clearly evidence-based but anything else that is a little bit more i call it dynamic a little bit more progressive I tell people about it, but very much with uh, the very clear disclaimer, as in read about it, get yourself comfortable with that. If you want to try it out, I I I have, mm. but I I would never I would never give anyone guidance on doing something that I'm that that there's not objective uh, data around. While we while we know that any clinical trial data is in itself oftentimes problematic but i think mm. that that's really the the one thing that the world is comfortable with at this stage yeah yeah <laughs> well it's it's very difficult um with 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 um with science as a whole but especially medical data to, to distinguish whether or not something is is effective or not because it's not that simple is it i mean there's so many factors you can never really have a true um true 
analysis of the introduction of a new chemical into a human body um, because every human body's you know chemical makeup is slightly different and there's so many other factors going on in that person's life that's going to contribute to the eff efficacy of it or not right so it's, it's a very complex field which is why human beings seem to just you know focus on like you made that example of you know opening a newspaper and just like um you know drinking too much coffee can uh you know cause alzheimer's like that's the sort of stuff people just look at and go okay i understand that that's yeah. that's easy for me to wrap my head around okay i'll stop drinking so much coffee you know or eating too many apples gives you cancer or like you know there was a period throughout you know throughout media where everything just fucking, fucking gave you cancer you know so it's just like mm. um you know we, but, but human beings are, uh, are, are wired that way we, we want in th things to be black and white sometimes yeah. so um so yes now your your user test groups so let's talk about where you are now with things so you've got a test group how many are in their test group at the moment 16 people 16 okay and so they're going through like you said a sort of a tailored um uh is this tailored to, to each individual or is this it's a program that you've developed as a whole um, um no it's it's really tailored to each individual so how it works is really that uh, and right. the user will fill in their user profile and mm -hmm. then um the, the user test is for 12 weeks so, but of course the app will be um especially the way it's envisaged is really um will be used for months at a time over the the user's lifetime certainly not every single day forever but whenever they feel like they they want to get back into a certain routine and of course there will be new data emerging over time so mm -hmm. what we know now versus what we know in three years we will know more at that time so that that's why the idea is really that the app will be reused uh, over time but the back to your question the user test is for 12 weeks the user fills in the user profile that shows and these are 30 very specific questions that give um, a good indication of where they stand on certain risk factors. And then mm -hmm. based on uh, their user profile, they receive a weekly message uh, addressing um, risk factors in order of priority or severity. Um, and with that so then over these 12 weeks they have uh, received 12 messages and the concept is really that um the, well, the structure of the message is it's now email but it will be in an app push message um and the structure is that says um based on your user profile you are likely to have um, a risk in area a therefore this week's new brain healthy habit is going to be addressing A with blah, blah. And then um, the question, then a small paragraph, why? Small paragraph, how? As to what to do, what not to do. And then the last paragraph is further resources where they can read up, so link to certain scientific papers, link to podcasts, link to different neurologists who, who are publishing on a certain um, topic. And it is very much, some people just want to go straight to how, tell me what to do. Don't hear why. Some people go into every single detail and ask me in detail why did I include this link to this paper and not that paper and how does that work and why you know so yeah that 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 that's really the the concept and uh, with that it is twelve new habits that are being introduced that are ideally something for the long term for them mm -hmm. stick with however long. Uh, they feel comfortable with it so i'm always trying to introduce very much the whole listen to yourself your body tells you 
what you need and what you don't need. Um, and um, the, the interesting thing for me is, of course, after usually three, four, five weeks, I get a response back as in, uh, now I've done this for a little while, I feel so much better in a certain aspect of my life. Mm. Again, not scientific, uh, it's not a clinical trial, but so that, that is really the high level uh, approach. And um, tomorrow, my first user, the first user that, that signed up, uh, that is going to be her 12th week. Um, and so um, that is kind of the, 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 the wave is coming to to end now. And um, it is, yeah, it's so incredibly important to have real life data and not mm. just friends find everything great, but actually then people saying like, so what does it mean? What do I have to do? And um, some people having this expectation something terrible is going to happen or have very high resistance. I don't really want, I want to be healthy and happy forever, but I don't want to do anything for it. Uh, and then the realization, it's no big deal at all. It's nothing crazy at all. It's very simple, but it will have quite a significant impact on your life. So there is quite a lot of rethinking that I'm seeing that, that the users need to do. And um, some of them are friends or friends of friends. Some are strangers. Um, and that is very interesting to see different uh, backgrounds, different ethnicities, different uh, educational backgrounds, different areas in the UK where they live. So right now it's UK uh, focused. Um, and yeah, so lots and lots and lots of interesting insight from that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and and what's your sort of, what would you say is the ideal user profile here? Because I'm I'm thinking about when you're describing this, you know, uh, the sort of journey for a user and all that, I'm, I, I think of what I often think to when we look at disruptive tech when it comes to lifestyle, which is the problem of time, um, time poverty, right? The, the, yeah. the general, the general day to day person, um, you know, th th I have, I had this conversation a lot with people who are in sustainable tech, for example, mm. you know, who are trying to have a, a positive uh, uh, impact on the environment and things like that. And the problem that I always come up with with this is, um, I, I think, a valid one, which is the vast majority of human beings need things to be quick and they need things to be cheap. And, you know, they need to be affordable. They, they don't have the time to invest in things. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people out there are just, you know, just managing to survive. You know, they've got kids they're they're trying to pay the rent, they keep the lights on, they're working two jobs like, you know, and that's why people make bad lifestyle choice, you know, decisions like eating unhealthy foods and so on, because of it's what's available. So and make them, you know, poor buying decisions because they have to, they have got no other options. So then, so my question kind of is is, is similar to that in a sense of like, what is the ideal profile for someone to use this sort of thing because they have to have you know i suppose a certain amount of um of what's the word i'm looking for privilege to a degree um in terms of being able to have time to spend on this but also the means to make effective change within their lives um which could quite often be you know not only time but also money right uh, to maybe be able to afford to change their dietary, you know, clients or get that gym membership or whatever else. So, how do you see that? Like, maybe, maybe you've got some thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely, possible. definitely. Um, the funny thing is, um, it is monetarily a very small investment, any in pretty much all uh, all these interventions. Um, time wise, yes, a little bit. 
mindset-wise, it's the biggest thing, really. So for right. just to give you a few examples of interventions that are classic. So for example, I can see from a user profile, uh, a person is of Caribbean descent, they live in the UK, they have an indoors job, um, they, um, they really don't want to be in nature. First things, of course, likelihood that they are vitamin D deficient is very high. So the first intervention will be get your levels tested, uh, have supplementation of uh, a certain level, aim for a certain blood serum level, and so on. Uh, vitamin D supplements cost nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking in a five pounds investment per month. And that is literally in the morning, uh, morning coffee, vitamin D. Yeah, but um, five pounds can be a lot to some people. And that's well, kind of the point I'm making, you know, like even even the time. And, and this isn't I'm not trying to discredit what you're doing. Right I, just, I just, just want to explore this because, you know, I, I, I really want to see these sort of technologies and these innovations be available to everyone. And mm -hmm. and I think what we quite often forget when we're, we're building these solutions um, is that, you know, five pounds can be a huge amount of money to some people like that. That could be a week's shopping like to some. I mean, not maybe these days, but you know what I mean? Like that could feed you know one of their kids, um, mm -hmm. you know, for, for a, you know, for a couple of meals um and and then you know even like the the the, the steps you said there about getting themselves uh, their levels tested and, and these sort of things like that that takes that takes time that takes also a certain amount of knowledge but i suppose i'm answering my own question in a way which is that well that those are the type of people that probably wouldn't even begin this journey in the first place but but that's also my my point which is well then what can we do to make these things more accessible mm -hmm. you know yeah. i suppose is that something that maybe you would want to tackle a bit later on down the road and that yes. right now you're going to be looking at those who are in the in a position of a certain amount of privilege that they can actually yeah. begin this journey right yeah um it's interesting that you say that so first of all the age group uh, that i'm aiming for is 35 to 49 simply right. because alzheimer's has an incredibly long lead time so we both will already have some amyloid beta and possibly hyperphosphorylated tau in the brain but so that's why it's so important to now stop doing stupid things and um, so um, and really step one is um, the user acquisition is really working through a B2B2C business model um, and the initial um, B2B customers are uh, private life insurers, private health insurers, uh, corporate wellness programs, DNA labs and so on that will right. be okay. paying the subscription to Viattitude and then giving that app for free mm. to their members and clients. And that's stage one. Um, mm. And these are, yeah, as you say, people that are privileged enough to have the time to get in DNA and spend five pounds per month. I absolutely see what you're saying that five pounds can be a problem for for people, no question. And mm. um, so the, the stage one is really the, um, the these people that are privileged in the sense that they they will. Um, be able to afford that as small as these investments are but also to have the ability to to understand why this is so important for the brain mm. being that bearing exercises or ensuring sleep uh, in a certain way and having certain sleep hygiene protocol and all these things um, but of course the mid-long-term dream is to be able to um, provide that up to the nhs 
to the primary care the, the GPs who would give it to all their patients um, and um, really make it accessible to all. And mm. to, of course, it's 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 a journey. I'm absolutely clear that people that have never really thought about um, what food and life do for health. And so some people are biohackers. You know, they know everything. They do the most amazing things. They have a biological age is 20 years younger than their chronological age, for sure. Mm. But these people have likely a long-term healthy brain. But of course, what I would like to, or who what I would like to reach is really the general population that don't even know that there are so many things that they can very easily change to improve their heart health and without their brain health and so many, so many small things and the vitamin D uh, intervention. And if this person literally has no money at all and cannot, does not want to, but only to stop using sunscreen and to go out into daylight as much as possible. That really is a huge help. There are, um, there are always some free alternatives to it, yeah, uh, to yeah. certain things, right? You know, you can't afford a gym membership, just go and have a run. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so there, there are always some things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and it's interesting, you you mentioned the the, the sort of um, the business model there, because I was going to ask about that. And, and that clarifies a lot of that, too, because of being able to give access to, to people um, as opposed to a sort of a direct consumer model where you have to charge them for it. That, that definitely makes it a lot more accessible. Um, but it's definitely going to be a, a, st a strategy that, you know, like you, like you said, is going to be sort of have to work in waves, you know, bring it out to certain uh, certain groups of individuals sort of one, one at a time, um, as is often the case with these commercial strategies, as, as I well know, right, Doing given that's what I do for a living. Um, so, yeah, massively, massively interesting. So um, so what is the next step? You're saying you're sort of you're, you're currently entering into a fa phase um of, oh, by the way, do you need to, to have a quick break or anything? Or are you, are you okay to carry on? I'm, I'm okay. Surprisingly. Okay. Um, good, good. Um, so, um, yeah, you're, you're now wrapping, sort of winding down this this first user test phase. So what's what's the next step? What's happening after that? And so it's really that um, there will be another user test. Um, definitely right. all the learnings um, from the first one. Um, so I am now, um, I'm, I've been with Eagle Labs, uh, the incubator. Um, there is, uh, I've been invited to demo day um, in mid-October. Uh, so that's um, time to, to meet investors as well. Mm. Um, and really raising funding for the MVP is really the next big step. Yeah. Um, and um, I've been starting to speak with um, uh, very loosely with angel investors just to get their thoughts on anything from the pitch deck to the classic questions as in, you know, what you really need is people that put it very seriously and say, right, I, I don't like this. Why? I would never invest because one, two, three, you know? So mm -hmm. um, these are the kind of conversations that I've been having. But yeah, so the next big step is really uh, raising funding for the MVP and building uh, the MVP and really having something concrete to show to um, B2B clients. Um, because while I've had initial conversations and it's always the whole sounds right, but they need to see something, something yep. real. And, uh, and that really takes uh, a bit of an investment. So that that's really, that's awesome. yeah. So becoming investor ready, 
getting investment and 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 like you said, presumably doing as as many user tests as possible in the interim, right? Um, how are you going to balance that all though? Because because uh, <laughs> um, I'm I'm funny enough on the 18th of this month, uh, which by the time this episode releases would have been been and gone because this is going to come out later in the year. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a workshop specifically on investment outreach um, and sales tactics as a whole, right? Outreach to, to get users and, and uh, investment, whatever. And um, one of the things that I have in that presentation, that workshop is talking about balance. There's a lot of founders I speak to that are trying to sort of do everything all at once. And as you you well know, um, you know, any one major task like you perform, you know, getting user groups to come in and test, that can take up your entire time. You know, you've got very little time to do much else. And invest, you know, see, uh, getting investor ready is one one huge task. And then um, actually going out and, do, you know, being on the raising trail is a, is a full time job. So yeah. how are you planning on balancing these things? Are you going to be doing them in stages um, to ensure that you're kind of not too overburdened? Or have you got some help? Like, well, what's your strategy there for making sure that you don't, uh, you know, fold under the pressure, as it were? <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely um, doing it in stages for sure. Um, and um, so I I have so I'm a sole founder. I have a CTO um, who will right. um, really get involved in tea in in the technical side of things. Um, but I'm at the stage really now, on the one hand, very much speaking with people, potential co-founders. Um, and advise us. Um, that is really the incredibly important thing to um, as, as you know. Yeah. Um, because um, and, and, and really advise us on the business side of things, on how to run a startup, how to uh, push that forward, how to uh, be successful in the fundraising campaign, but also, of course, on the neurological side of things. Um, I've started to speak with um, a professor in the US who is very much a a functional medicine neurologist. Um, so these, mm. are, of course, a number of people that I would love to have on my advisory board. And yeah, yeah, I can it imagine. Is very much stage of um, starting to to connect with people that will hopefully be uh, on the advisory board. But yeah, it, everything has to happen in stages. Um, at this stage, I I I cannot have everything at once. Um, but at the same time, I have realized how far I've come from the initial idea to where things are now. Um, it was like a million little pivots. And that is now the initial idea was... A friendly reminder to share this episode with your network, subscribe for more and join the conversation in the comments. It really helps us out. Thank you. Probably fundamentally that, but um, it has taken me quite a long time to actually realize how would it work? What are the realities of it all? And also, um, so my background is certainly not um, being a startup founder at all. I I had a little bit of, uh, I dipped my toe in, in, I mean, that that was not really a startup. That was jewelry design when I was very ill because, you know, that's what wife's of the best micro student. Um, and so, but this is, this is now really something where I had to organically learn so much. Mm. And also the language, you know, of all these founder kids that use all these words that, I don't know, a year ago or more, I was just thinking, what are we talking about? 
and <laughs> now now it's starting to make sense and now i can have conversations with confidence um that this is what i'm going to do and this is the reason why as opposed to before where when anyone would tell me something with confidence this is what you have to do i'd be like okay you know uh, and so this is this is very much this this journey and now things are becoming more and more and more concrete if that makes mm. sense yeah there's a certain amount of certainty that you get you get once you're within the community after all because yeah it's it's a it's a it's like a subculture uh, yeah. almost yeah. of you know entrepreneurialism and 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 foundership it's uh it's interesting it's got its own like you said its own language its own set of rules it's uh yeah, yeah it's do's and don'ts and so on uh, it takes a while to to get and and i think you know it always comes back to whenever I talk about this with any founder, you know, speaking with more founders, like that's the key, isn't it? Is speak yeah. to as many founders as possible, go to networking events, meet people, like get out of the house, you know, do stuff. But um, yeah. it's difficult because again, it comes down to that balance issue of like, well, you know, I need to do that, but I also need to build fucking startups. So it's like, you know, um, so you gotta do it. Are you, um, you're based in London, right? Yeah. Yeah, are you going to the uh, London startup scene networking event this evening? And thirty-nine. Yeah. 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 You are um, fantastic. Yeah. I'll see you there. <laughs> yeah. Last yeah. time, yeah. um, I I love that place so much. But last time, it was such a surreal, surreal noise level. I don't know if you were there as well. I wasn't at level thirty-nine. I was at the one before, uh, the last one, which was at what was it called? Oh, Asam Asara Asarama or something like that. It was it in in Southwark, Bermondsey Southwark. I think so. But yeah, I was, I, I it was in this vault, in, vault. The, in this underground space, if that makes sense. Um, Maybe. Maybe. No, I think, are you thinking of the one where you walk through the bookcase to go downstairs? Uh, yes. That yeah, that was a few months ago. That was, that was quite that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the one, the, the most recent one was um, at a new venue he's not been at before which was uh which was a love it was multiple floors like lots of bars a huge stage and stuff like that but this is yeah back at level 39 which i've not been to because i know he's on one there before i think it was the one before last um but i've not been there before but um yeah yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah I i love to speak with people and what i've definitely learned it's a huge learning that the real starter startup founders these are the people that are so incredibly kind, generous. Yeah. They will yeah. share their knowledge, their contacts, everything. And these are the most magical people to be mm. around. Um, but in any networking context, there are always people that are that that are not of that with that vibe. They're yes. the, they're the takers, know, the leeches. <laughs> yeah. I've still learned to differentiate quite quickly. Who mm. I'm talking to, um, yeah. but yeah. So I say speaking to other founders and picking up on their energy, their motivation, their inspiration is just absolutely magical. Yeah, yeah. But but to be to be fair to the leeches in the in these sort of communities, um, I, I think that comes with an experience. And in fact, a lot of a lot of um, people entering into these networking events initially are like that to a degree because you're kind of given this mis misconception about networking events. That the idea is to get something out of it, right? which you do but not in the way that people think so the idea is you know get there make meaningful connections you know get, get sales like what you know get investment so so they're in sales mode which is to 
to go mm. up to people and, and try and be like, hey, you know, I do this thing. Like, what do you, you know, would you be able to help me? And it's mm. it's very much like, give me, give me, give me. And it's really only with experience and time you realize what you get out of it is what you put into it. Yeah. So if you're going there to offer help and to be useful and to just have a good time and be a good person, mm. then things come to you maybe later on, but don't expect it. Um, that's not how life works. You know, people won't do things for you because you expect them to. They'll do them because they want to. And you have to be a good person for that to happen. <laughs> you know, um, that's that. So, so in fairness to them, I think they do often, once they go to these things more often, then you see, you tend to notice a change in the way that they deal with it because they realize that strategy doesn't work and no one yeah. wants to speak to them. So, you know, it changes usually pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> that but that's great. I'll see you there because I volunteer there. I'm, I'm a community volunteer there. So part yeah, of what I yeah. do is I go around and I speak mm -hmm. to people, um, yeah. I, you know, find out how they're doing and, and get to know them. And I encourage them to join the Slack community because I'm an, yeah. an admin there and I moderate that. Um, right. And, you know, just, yeah, and that's what I that's what I do, which is perfect for me because I love speaking to people. So yeah, <laughs> he's, he's found the ideal role for me. So I'll see you there later on. But um, yeah. That's great. So, um, so yeah, will you be ent entering into the ring to, to, to maybe pitch, to do a, an open mic pitch? Not yet, not yet. Not yet. Um, okay. um, so for my demo day with uh, Eagle Labs, um, so we're perfecting the five minute pitch. And um, so that is very much uh, for me, the very exciting journey to go from, you know, for a long time, I was always like, oh, no, 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 I, no, not yet, not yet. And then at some point, somebody at each labs just said, Tina, go for it. And um, so now I am working on my voice, my tone, um, and getting through material quickly enough without erasing through it. And so the mm -hmm. whole thing, and of course, that's a whole group of um, of painfully uh, people that give feedback, which is incredibly important yeah if i if i could offer a piece of unsolicited probably un, un yeah advice as well <laughs> um, i always offer this advice to founders and I, I i think i may have spoken about it before on previous episodes but the best form of pitching for me personally as an ex-angel investor i consider myself an ex-angel investor because i'm now focused my resources on other things but um mm. and and just having been in this game for as long as i have Pitches are quite often void of narrative. And I think that is massively doing people a disservice. And um, you have a beautiful narrative, you have a compelling story. And to not include elements of that, I think, in a pitch is hugely detrimental to, to, a, to, to a pitch's success. Because um, yes, investors want to hear the numbers, the market size, the opportunity, they do. But human beings resonate with story. And human beings resonate with the hero's journey. And so to hear a story of an, an individual go through a journey, even if it's just the first minute of something, psychologically primes people to fall in love with the person and to relate to them and to empathize with them so that they're hooked and they will listen to all of the boring data shit afterwards, um, which is the most which is the most difficult thing. Um, so, yeah unsolicited piece of advice that you probably already knew and you're probably already doing but just for the yeah. listeners as well out there you know i think that's a really important thing to do and you don't yeah. i don't think you need to have like a story filled full of tragedy or you know like you know ups and downs and all this kind of thing in order to be compelling everyone has a story it could be as yeah. simple as someone i spoke to the other day where it was like they said to me i don't there's not really a story we just 
it was just a few of us in a WhatsApp group, and we were like, "Hey, no one's doing this. Should we do it?" And I was like, "That's the story. That's the you story. Know, yeah. That's the story." It's like you know, this had been on my mind for a while, and we were talking yeah. about it in a group, and suddenly one of us had a light bulb moment, and boom, that's your story. You know, yeah. so. Yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, storytelling is, is definitely such a huge thing, and um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I think um, we're being very much trained on um, telling a story, and and of course, my thing is always I that that was so. so I had a I had a, um, a consultation, if you will, the other day with somebody who was who was getting me pitch ready, and um, mm -hmm. I just said. I am very happy to tell my story, but in a way, I want that to be an empowering story and a quick one. Mm. And I want that to be uh, like, oh my God, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because um, that's not who I want to be. And of course, the most important thing is um, being an investable founder, you have to be strong in every way, strong. And of course, mm. illness is not associated with strength. So um, that, that to me is the most important thing to be very clear that was my past, uh, right. but now, this is me now and um, so yeah it's it's a fine line but i absolutely agree the pictures that i've heard the story is a hook that's the that's absolutely. the thing that you remember yeah yeah, absolutely. yeah and and it gives the opportunity to inject personality as well which is which is often void in pitching and i and i think that's a, that does people a massive disservice because they're, they're told quite often by people who coach them and things like that you know they just want the numbers they want the, the and so because of that there's no opportunity to to improvise and and to to let themselves come out, they're, they're reading a memorized script. And the good thing about storytelling is you you have that opportunity to inject yourself into it and your feelings and your emotions, and that comes through. And at the end of the day, people buy from people, right? So so that's hugely important. Um, and obviously, that's that. There's a huge asterisk next to that, which is as long as you're not an asshole, it works <laughs> because because. The, the, the problem with letting personality come through is if you don't have a nice one, well, then it's don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen people do that, too, where like they've gone the other way and it's like, ah, you maybe shouldn't. Do you know what? Maybe let, be less yourself. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Being yourself isn't always great in that scenario. Do you know what I mean? Like I've seen that some very arro arrogant, egotistical people make it very clear that they're arrogant and egotistical. And it's like, ah, OK, stick to the numbers, dude. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I've met an asshole founder. I don't think I've met those. I, oh, I've I'm, met loads. <laughs> possibly they were kind of a much later stage, possibly already right. exited, starting to talk about their Lamborghinis and stuff. That, right. of course, yeah, no. Um, but um, I think the, the actual ones that are really at a stage to get stuff off the ground, yeah. They are. I, I've noticed very often, and that's that's a classic thing to um, to be much to, um, not not enough confidence. I mean, in in my incubator, there's one very young girl who has developed something incredibly cool. And when we did our first uh, pitch competition online, and she was just like, you know, and mm. and we're all like, um, um. Speak up. <laughs> Imagine yeah. your 18-year-old male and then now talk talk about your thing, you know? So as she was just so so understated and so and 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 the questions after what were like, so what is your what is your business? And then she kind of carefully mentioned all the customers and clients she already has on board. And and it was just the whole mm. over like 15 people and we're like 
uh, what's happening here, you know? So um, I, I think that might come back to um, possibly the male versus female way of pitching. And then of course the male versus female uh, being able to raise funding. That's a whole, I mean, I'm, I'm not gender obsessed in that way, but I find it very interesting to, to it observe. Is interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, men, men generally are, they, they do have a, and, and again, generally are, they tend to have a, a little bit more comfortable speaking in front of audiences and and, and they're not um, as averse to confrontation as women. Women tend to be more risk averse and, and confrontation averse, which is, I think, a, you know, a, a fairly well accepted sort of thing within within the, the, the differences between male and female psychology and biology. But um, but it's true that, that, that there is, for a lot of first time founders, there's a, there's a confidence issue. But I always remember what um, a guest of mine, a friend of mine and a guest of mine uh, on last season, Ewan Moran mentioned, he's a founder of Barback. He mentioned that um, uh, that you know, he believes you need to have a certain amount of arrogance, really, um, to be a founder. Because essentially, what you're saying as a founder is, I know how to do this better, right? Um, and especially if you're going into an established industry, you're mm -hmm. not just saying that to yourself; you're saying that to a whole industry. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that's what you're doing. You know, you're saying mm -hmm. to the medical industry, you're not doing a very good job. This whole industry that's been built over hundreds of years, like you're not doing a good job, a good enough job here. I know how to do this better. And so that mm -hmm. there is a certain level of level of inherent arrogance mm -hmm. in innovation, which is to say there is a better way of doing this, and you're not doing it. And I know what it is, but you just mm -hmm. need to toe that line to make sure it doesn't come across in in certain ways. And mm -hmm. the asshole founders that I can think of were arrogant in ways beyond just that. That, you know it was every part of how they operated as a human being and running a business which was i know better than you on every single level and it's like well i can't work with someone who's employed me to do something very specific as an expert and then telling me that they know how to do it better when they've never done this before and i have you know that's like okay you are just an asshole <laughs> you know? um so you know there are some people who think they're innovators in everything and so they're like well i want to i want to rip apart everything to do with how to run a business and it's like no dude like you you're an innovator in this one thing stay in your lane like there are there are sort of some things that just need to be done a certain way um yeah. you're just going to you're not going to be able to build a business like by by you know saying you're i don't know you want to be a socialist company in a capitalistic society for example <laughs> you know what i mean it just won't work so yeah, yeah they do exist but thankfully they're few and far between um Although someone did um, recently post online about that there's um, apparently some science, uh, some studies to back up the fact that the vast majority of entrepreneurs and founders are uh, susceptible to sociopathic tendencies, <laughs> which is interesting, like, because I suppose a certain amount of sociopathic uh, tendencies is a healthy, uh, you know, you can have a, a function, be a functioning sociopath. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Or a functioning psychopath, <laughs> yeah. um, which maybe we are. As long as it's not a narcissistic personality disorder, then right, I think exactly. go a little bit far. But yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, after all, um, we have to be convinced that whatever we've come up with is an amazing or great thing, and then we want other right. people to invest their hard-earned money in it. And mm -hmm. so with that, that definitely that that needs confidence and and really belief in it. And yeah, as you say, it is a very fine line to not turn into um, I know everything better than you, but also, right. and I think, um, and that is something that probably quite a few people have is letting go of control as an, I know better, this thing of, unless you do it yourself, it's not going to be done right. 
you know so this yep. thinking so many people have and and of course in a context where something is your baby then to give at least part of it in into somebody else's hands as in now you will take care of half of my baby and um, that is that is of course a hard thing to do it um, is very so hard I, yeah yeah, yeah. I, i've worked with a lot of founders who have raised series a and in fact series a is the most difficult period for them because yeah. following yeah. following that money landing in the bank um that, and and then suddenly they have a hiring team and they've got recruiters they don't even need to be involved in the hiring process anymore um and right. their team's growing without them um, yeah. That can be very alienating, and a lot of a lot of founders I work with need to, actually the relationship dynamic between me and them changes more from advisor to to coach in that moment because they need more emotional support rather than st strategic support. Uh, support actually, yeah, yeah, because they feel secluded from their own business. Um, they feel it's growing without them. It's like it's like their kid going to college. You know, you don't need yeah. me anymore right exactly yeah it's like oh they grow, grow up so quick you know I, i've been abandoned what do i do um but of course what it means is just their job has changed it doesn't mean that yeah. that they're gone yeah. in the same way that when your parent your kid goes to college your parenting yeah. job has changed it doesn't mean you stop being a parent you're still needed just in a different way and it's a lot more distance where you're now distance parenting in the same way that you're now distance leader you know leadership and your responsibility mm -hmm. set has changed and now you can focus on different things so it's yes yeah, very interesting i end up becoming more of a therapist than a strategic commercial advisor at that point um but it's been a it's been a while actually since i've been in that position i haven't spoke, uh, worked with a, a couple uh, series a for a little while so anyone listening out there who is give me a shout <laughs> um but look we, we are we are coming to the end so um something i normally do towards the end is ask for uh, my guests to give some tips to founders um you know uh, in relation to you know anyone who's maybe going through a similar journey to you but i want to do something a little different um which is because we've already kind of touched on that anyway to a degree just now but also because of given what you're doing i think it'll be interesting to hear what you would say are some of your um your biggest tips for uh, that you could maybe pass out there um for those wanting to make changes in their lifestyle to improve cognitive or brain health uh, you've touched on a few already but are there any others that you would maybe you know in the next couple of minutes you do want to put out there um, or maybe not necessarily even changes but things for maybe to go and read to look at to you know to explore um possibly one very big thing is to change the the mindset really to think if i'm not feeling well to listen to myself first before i ask somebody else how i am so that's probably the biggest thing to really to trust yourself to trust your own body to trust to listen to your body i think mm. that is probably mindset wise the most important thing um and otherwise my vitamin d obsession will never stop so um anyone i would advise to um, get themselves tested ideally with a private lab because they will actually give you the level as opposed to the GP guy, guys will just say like, it's fine. That is bottom, bottom, bottom of okay. But we need to aim much higher. Um, and um, in terms of nutrition, um, possibly again, mindset change. Um, don't think that things that are good for the brain will taste bad quite the opposite um just look into what is actually truly brain healthy not not as listed by the nhs 
PDC, FDA, or any of those organizations. Or like, or like fad, fad stuff like you get yeah. on TikTok and things like that, right? Yeah. So really just a few fundamentals about um, omega-3 olive oils and all that. And to think that, that that food that makes you feel good, is that is actually the magical food, the true treat, as opposed to I'm going to treat myself with a beer and a Snickers. Mm. That is a very short term approach to treat. So I, I probably, that's probably the most important change I've made for myself to, to view things that make me feel good as a true treat that I'm looking forward to more than anything. Um, high quality olive oil, that to me, that is my, that is my obsession. I, I love, mean, I, yeah, I'm the same. So, so <laughs> I, I, I spend more money, I think, on, on good quality olive oil than any other sort of condiment, I guess, you know, or, or staple um, pro yeah. product in my pantry. I think that's the most, yeah. Um, two, two very last quick questions then for you to answer before I let you go then. Um, in relation to getting tested for vitamin D um, clinics, do you have a recommendation as to what clinic in the UK you can use? Is yeah. it something that can be done online? Yeah. Um, there's a lab that I've been using for long time by now because I take high levels and I'm aiming for a very high level and that lab is called Medichex and they have Medichex. a very simple concept um, you leave a blood sample like a finger prick blood sample you send it to them and within three four days they send you the results online right and so and that is usually 35 pounds or something and okay. so that is that is an investment that is worth more than anything um, yeah absolutely would you be able to send me a link to them um, via, via LinkedIn for that? And I can put it in the description of this video along with your website and everything else. I'll put it all in the I, I should ask those guys to to really give yeah. me some. By now, I've told. Yeah, yeah, a referral program or something, yeah. Um, and the last quick question I have, because, again, related to what you just said there, was you mentioned about, you know, doing your research beyond things that, like, the NHS say or, like, I pointed out, like, you know, fads, recommendations. Where is a good source of truth in your opinion, on this kind of information, because it's very difficult to know where to go. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. And of course, anything that is the truth, it's always like, well, is it though? Um, what was a, reli are, a reliable enough source yeah. of, of information, would you say? There are a few neurologists that I follow that some of them have uh, podcasts, um, some have books. Um, I'll, I'll just send you those links. Yeah, if um, you could, that would be great. I, I can include those in the description too. Yeah, because I yeah, think it, people listening to this will be interested to want to know yeah. more and, and and you know, yeah, it's just difficult to navigate Google for yeah. stuff like this. And, and when you want to look at medical papers, especially, it's very difficult because a lot of them are private and you have to be part of an institution to get access to them. And there's a whole whole thing. And then plus reading them is, is difficult yeah. as well. No, that's, you know, yeah. That's not yeah. something, yeah. Well, look, thank you so much. This has been, I've learned a lot from this conversation like I always do. And um, it's lovely seeing you again. And I'm really excited for everything you're doing. Hopefully I'll see you later anyway. I mean, I know these things can get a bit crazy. There's been a lot of times I've said that. I've been there at the same time as other people and we just That's didn't see thing. each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, but hopefully I'll, I'll catch up with you later anyway. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a thank wonderful you. discussion and we'll definitely have to do a part two at some point in the near future. I'd love to. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, have a lovely day and I'll see you later on. All right. Take Bye. Care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for watching and or listening. Please like, subscribe and join the conversation in the comments below.